Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. And I'm Ravi Gupta. And this is Majority 54, the podcast for meaningful conversations that change minds, change votes, and win elections. At the end of this episode, you will hear our conversation with Claudia Somm, uh, who is an economist who's going to educate us and you about inflation. We found this conversation really valuable, and I think you will too. Ravi, how you doing? I'm good. You are emerging from shingles, and I think you're starting to get active again. So tell me about yeah, this week. I'm starting to work out again, and boy, you know, it's it's been a few years since I had to miss enough workouts in a row that my body settled into that place where it is more interested in staying still than moving. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and, and man, it is it's like turning a giant ship. I mean, it, it's <laughs> very hard, but I'm 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 starting to get there. I think I know I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's really really difficult. Yeah. So what about you? I mean, we've got this fitness competition going again. And boy, it seems like people are really into it. This is a very serious one. Yeah, we made some innovations that we won't bore the audience with, but we kind of turned up the intensity a little bit. And people are really intense, I would say. I got to the point where some of my employees are in it and I have to like remind them to do their actual work instead of like gaming out the fitness competition. Well, they're all also like in their early 20s. Like it's very yeah. difficult for the rest of us to do. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Although, I mean, there are, I mean, there's some of our listeners signed up. I, I think, you know, there's there's at least one team that I think is mostly majority 54 listeners who follow me on Instagram that reached out to join. You know, I'll just say it's like a good diverse mix of people, both ge- geographically and, and what their goals are. And so, you know, it's it's cool to see. You know, it's it's how we rebooted this podcast. Is yeah. The original version of that is how you and I got to talking about this pod. You were you're in that original group. Yeah. Uh, no, it's it's been uh, it's been fun. Okay, uh, let's talk some trash. Well, speaking of fitness, our boy Josh Holly's been getting some runs in. Big revelation last week was that video released by the January 6th committee shows that he was sprinting across a hallway on January 6th as he and his fellow senators were evacuating. This was the same day that he had that, you know, we've seen the photo where he like had a fist raised and he was rallying up the crowd outside and he voted to object to the certification of the election. I saw a little write up in the Kansas City Star. How are people in the great state of Missouri, Missouri, whatever we call it, uh, how are they taking this news? Look, nobody likes Josh Hawley. I mean, look, people, there's plenty of people who vote for Josh Hawley. We're a Republican state right now, right? And Josh Hawley is the Republican in that Senate seat. And if he runs for re-election, got a good strong chance of getting re-elected because he's a Republican. And we've moved into a parliamentary stage of our democracy right now where people, particularly for the Senate, 
are are voting based on party line. But that should never be mistaken for thinking that people have any sort of warm feelings for a certain office holder. I mean, like, I know a lot of Republicans, both, you know, Republicans who voted for him, Republican elected officials who know him well. I've never had anybody tell me they like Josh Hawley. So I don't know, you know, if that's no consolation to anybody. But I also think we shouldn't lose the thread in all of this, that it's not just that he was the guy who like raised his fist and all that. If not for Josh Hawley, you don't have the objection. Everybody was on board with, hey, we're not going to do this. And Josh Hawley was the one who stepped out and was like, no, 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 I'm going to grab this headline. I'm still going to do this. I'm still going to object. So it's like he is really responsible for a lot of this. And he made the choice to have the, have it go in this direction and even have this showdown happen on January 6th. So he opened the door figuratively to this. And look, is it fair to say uh, that he shouldn't have run from a mob that was looking to potentially kill senators? Uh, no, it's not fair. But also, fuck that guy. That would be the counterpoint because he's the one who caused all this shit in the first place. And the point is not that he was running, but more that he was running past the very Capitol police officers who were there to protect him and who he has shown nothing but derision and just negligence toward since then. So, I mean, you know, this is the guy who claims now to not have been for the Iraq war, despite the fact that many witnesses say that during the invasion of Iraq, he popped popcorn and talked about how fun it was going to be to watch on television because he's just a a phony asshole. Uh, You know, sorry. Well, I think like, you know, to your point, the Kansas City Star also, I think, reported that there were certain Capitol officers who were really upset that they were the ones protecting him when he was rallying up the crowd outside and he was doing that from the safety that they provided for him. And then he, you know, he's been, as you said, you kind of snotty towards them ever since, but he was running from the very crowd. I think it's interesting, you know, we got to look ahead. He has a book coming out in 2023 called Manhood, The Masculine Virtues oh, are you serious? America Needs. Yeah, this is the book, Manhood, The Masculine Virtues America Needs. And oh my God. I think it'll be, I was hoping it was coming out soon because then, you know, I we could have people from this podcast, check out, check it out in libraries. Cause we've got to make sure we don't actually pay <laughs> money for this thing, but then we could do, I want to do an episode where we just do reviews of the book via voicemail. I think that would be hilarious, but I think, you know, Holly has not been contrite even in the face of this video. He spoke a Friday at a, at a right wing gathering. And, and this is what he had to say. He said, I just want to say to all the liberals out there and to the liberal media, Just in case you haven't gotten the message yet, I do not regret voting to object to certification, and I'm not backing down. I'm not going to apologize. I am not going to run from you. Not going to run from you. Interesting language. Do you think he was being, that was on purpose, or he just didn't realize that he was using a metaphor that was basically leaning right into the jokes here? By the way, shout out to Twitter. People were remixed to running to things like Born to Run, uh, the Benny Hill theme running up that hill. I mean, incredible. It's, look, the thing about this is, is that you don't want to make fun of a guy for running from a crowd, but- I do. Well, but the problem is that he is the one who riled up the crowd. I mean, he's a human incarnation of a meme that is like 
Ike Clinton in Tombstone throwing the sash off at the end of the movie to Billy Zane in Titanic grabbing a child and I have a child, let me in in the <laughs> yeah, life raft. Like he's he very is, Billy Zane in Titanic vibes. I would have to oh, say. Oh, every yeah. day of his life, man. I mean, so it's hard to take. Given that we're talking about inflation, let's do two talking trashes because I think we're going to get very technical in a little bit. Tucker Carlson had. You know, I guess this is the manhood uh, talking trash uh, segment here. Like the GOP seems to love to talk about manhood. Tucker Carlson had some relationship advice that I think would be fun for us to unpack. Uh, Let's roll a clip here. So my advice to young people, particularly young men, is just dive face first into it. Like drop out of college. College is ridiculous unless you're moving towards some very specialized degree that you can only get in college, if you want to be a veterinarian or a physicist or something. But if you're in humanities, you know, I can give you a list of 100 books. You can find it on the Internet and you'll be better educated than you would be at whatever stupid college you go to. A. B. Get married. And, you know, choose wisely, but don't overthink it. You know, don't overthink it. People overthink it. Like if you're compatible with someone and and you can smell that, you can make it work. And by the way, it's never easy because men and women fundamentally don't understand each other. That's the whole joy in it. That's why marriage makes you grow is because you don't really understand the other person. So you have to try every day to decipher what that person's saying. Have more children than you can afford. Take a job you're not qualified for. Like, go balls out. (laughs) Balls out. Uh, I want to add later on in this conversation, Carlson continued Having sex with strangers is never that fun. Just stop lying about it, and you're too drunk anyway. So I I have a take that might surprise you, which is I agree with some of what he's saying. The thing is, I think we probably come to the conclusions for completely separate reasons, and he's saying this stuff because, like, in his mind, he's trying to go back to some Josh Hawley-esque version of manhood or whatever. I, I I assume that's what this is. This is some idea of like, the world needs ditch diggers too, like what Judge Smale said in, in Caddyshack. I think that's where he's coming from. For me, it's more like, well, yeah, like don't spend money on a thing if you don't know how you're going to use it yet. I'm down with that, but that's not what he means. I think um, he means that, ob- yeah, colleges are liberal, yada, yada, yada. That's this what is he all means. Like, yeah. Same thing with the relationship thing. He's not saying like, hey, marriage is great in and of itself. He's saying they're trying to tell you that marriage is like this kind of old fashioned thing. I get this, you know, when I was still talking to my brother, he loves this lecture, you know, to me all the time. This is why I, I, I love this clip is like, it's every conversation as a, you need to be doing exactly what I'm doing, which is moving out to the suburbs and having children and yada, yada, yada. And it's like, please, like, I don't tell you to be single and, and live a bachelor life in New York city, you know? Yeah. Well, that's the thing is like, Carlson is is saying it for the reasons you're talking about. It's it's a culture war thing. But the other stuff he says makes no sense. Like have more children than you can afford. Like what the hell kind of advice is that? I don't understand <laughs> yes. what kind of like have more anything than you can afford is terrible advice. And also <laughs> it is in line with his anti-abortion position. Here's one that really gets me because there's so much like within this take a job you're not qualified for would be tremendous advice if what you're trying to say is like Hey, like reach for the stars. But that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is just laden with so much unrecognized white privilege. Like take a job you're not qualified for. Like 
there's a pretty limited set of people who get jobs they're not qualified for. Like, you can't just grab one. They're not just like floating by. Like, most people don't get that opportunity. It's people like Tucker Carlson who get their first jobs through nepotism that get to take jobs they're not qualified for. I mean, so it's funny. I can reach some similar conclusions to him, but for completely different reasons, which is because I would be giving this advice to an actual human being and not a person that I see as somebody who is a pawn that is movable around the chessboard of American politics to suit the world that I want it to be. Well, I think we'll, we'll we'll keep the listeners updated on marriage and relationship advice coming from the right. I'm always <laughs> fascinated by by what they're saying. Uh, there is, though, I do like this version. I've said this before on this podcast. I do like this version of the GOP, the sort of like traditional 90s Bob Dole-like family values type GOP, because I think as many opportunities as they give us to put a wedge between them and the sort of UFC Rogan crowd, I want. Because this stuff doesn't play with that crowd at all. These people who are like of the barstool crowd or whatever that the GOP is courting, I wouldn't say they necessarily are anti-marriage. I think they they give me a like FU vibe where they're like, don't tell me how to live my life vibe. Well, also like they probably have gay friends, yes. right? And that's they, what Rogan talked about this week a lot. Okay, gay, yeah. Gay marriage in particular he talked about. Yeah. And they probably have a friend who's like – I mean, look, we all have a friend who's had an abortion. They have a friend who they actually are aware has had an abortion. They've talked to them about it. So, yeah, I I, uh, I think that that is a good point, that there is a wedge. And it's interesting because Tucker Carlson, he wants to be in both worlds. He wants to talk to both crowds. And so does Holly. They're all going to pull themselves into pretzels while Holly tries to please people who are two generations older than him. But at the same time, not lose you know this other crowd, and he'll do that by seeming sufficiently angry at the left. But it, I, it's going to be hard to hold both of those together. All right, should we talk about the news of the week? Sure. Well, we're going to have abbreviated news of the week this week because we have a great conversation about inflation and the recession and the economy coming up. But we can't not talk about this January 6th investigation. You know, the committee is taking a bit of a recess along with the rest of Congress as they do at this time of year. And we obviously, we could take stock and look back, but I think the biggest piece here is that Maggie Haberman and Glenn Thrush had a piece in the New York Times yesterday that broke that the Justice Department is asking witnesses about Trump uh, in particular, it seems like they're zeroing in on this sort of fake electors plot. There was a separate article by Maggie Haberman and Luke Broadwater that went through emails that the New York Times had verified from various people involved in this fake electors plot, including a lawyer down in Arizona who explicitly said, hey, let's line up the fake electors. <laughs> Use Dude, those God. words. <laughs> so, Wow. Uh, so what do we think happens here? Like, I think from, from our listeners, like I, I'm kind of putting a marker down here because, you know, we've talked many times. I am on fire both about the need to hold Trump accountable, but also the politics of what it's going to mean for various entities from the Biden Justice Department to individual district attorneys and attorneys general around the country who may be bringing charges against Trump in the next few months. Here's what I think is going to happen. I think that if the Justice Department decides to play this straight, then Trump's going to get indicted. And I think that the vast field of Republicans who see themselves as the next president of the United States, which is a 
real thing that existed a few years ago when Trump was president. I was part of the Democratic side of that for a while. Like there's a lot of people who see themselves as the next president right now. Most of them are Republicans, but, you know, as rumors swirl about Biden potentially not running, there's an increasing amount of Democrats who view it that way. But certainly the Republicans in that crowd, they're preparing themselves to say terrible things about a politicized Justice Department, da, da, da. Yeah, they'll be cheering it on. And behind the scenes be so happy because personally it clears the field for them to be able to get in there. And even the ones who don't run, they all know that their strongest candidate for president next time is not Trump. It's somebody else. You know, not everybody in the field would be stronger than Trump, but some people would be. And so I do think that's where we're heading. And I think it's going to come down to, does Merrick Garland have the stones to just follow the law here? Because if he does, I think it's pretty clear. Yeah. And I think there's so much talk about what Merrick Garland is doing or not doing. And to me, I am sympathetic to where he is right now, which is its longstanding policy of the Department of Justice, with the notable exception of with Hillary Clinton, to not comment on these investigations as they work their way through. And this reporting shows that he's doing the investigating. And the last thing you want is for leaks to come out or for him to make public announcements as this thing is is making its way through. This is incredibly difficult stuff. We're talking about a Department of Justice who's the head of the Department of Justice is picked by Biden and is a guy in Merrick Garland that it's not hard if you're being disingenuous to paint him as politically motivated, not just because of his ties to Biden, but because of the fact that he was prevented from being on the Supreme Court. And so I, I know he's not politically motivated. It's just I'm saying like he has to be extra careful because of the equities involved here and being one party investigating the leader of another party, essentially. So we got to be careful, right? We've got to make sure the case is airtight. And I think that's what he's doing. And I think until we know for sure, we have to put faith and say, like, the people entrusted with this investigation are, are doing the right thing here. And to me, this is a promising sign. This is the avenue that I think is the most fertile for charges against Trump because the the law that he's breaking is pretty obvious. Like I was reading an illegal analysis the other day on some of the other charges uh, that are swirling around Trump. And so much of it's going to come down to what kind of state of mind we attribute to Trump. Was he delusional himself in believing that he won the election or did he know he lost? And that's such a hard thing to prove in many circumstances, but not if he's explicitly engaging in conversations about installing fake electors. That is the smoking gun that we need. And so if they can if they can lay that at his foot, this might be the most promising avenue. In addition to some other things, like the obstruction of justice stuff, I think could also be really interesting and also be relatively easy to prove if Trump does certain things. You know, we gotta remember this is a guy who doesn't use email. So like the kind of case you gotta bring, you gotta you gotta bring a lot of witness accounts and things like that. Cause like, you know, we're not gonna get the email from Trump saying, hey, yeah, fake electors. Well, and he's went so far as to, it seems like use a burner phone when he's asking for phone numbers of people that he clearly calls all the time. So I think what people need to consider here, the politics of this is, yes, I, there are candidates who I think would be much more likely to win in 2024 than Trump if they're the nominee, like Ron DeSantis. And I think that's a real possibility. But you still have to pursue the law here because you have to pursue the law, but also because if you don't have consequences for trying to steal an election, more people will be incentivized to try to steal elections. So, so like you don't have a choice here, which I think sort of brings us to the next thing we were going to talk about, which is you got Eric Greitens potentially sinking in the polls because all the Republicans have come out and said, hey, we want to try and knock this guy off and get a different person in. And people in my state are like, uh-oh, 
that's the guy we wanted to face. And it is part of a larger debate around the country right now of should Democrats be doing things to prop up the more beatable candidates, even if they are the crazier ones. And I got to be honest, like going into a year that heavily favors the Republicans, I am firmly on the side of this is playing with fire and I don't want to mess with it. 100% agree. I think it's reckless. I was going to ask you like what you think is going on in Missouri and like if you have any predictions. When is that primary, by the way? Uh, It's in like, let's see, uh, a week. Oh, wow. Okay. So we'll know. Yeah. And I'll tell you like- Here's what I think is happening, which is, uh, I mean, there's just been a deluge of ads against Greitens where they just, you know, a super PAC came in and just was like, we're going to remind people over and over and over again about this. And I think what they've done is they've gotten across to a lot of Republican primary voters what is really accepted as conventional wisdom, which is the best chance that the Democrats have uh, of winning this race is if if their opponent is Eric Greitens. Yeah, I, I want to buck up our audience a little bit here. Like, I'd be lying if I didn't say this was going to be an extremely difficult midterm for us. I think the House in particular, I, I I struggle to come up with a path there to hold the House. But obviously, you got to fight for every single seat you can and hope that we can surprise people. The Senate doesn't look terrible right now. We, it could be terrible because obviously like a, a slim loss in every race is just as bad as a blowout in every race, right? So like, but we are in the fight in so many of these races. And I think as of today, I like where we are. We've picked good candidates. They've picked bad candidates by and large. And our candidates are polling well. First of all, the last two polls to come out in the House have uh, generic Dems up, plus six in The Economist. Uh, YouGov poll and plus four and political. That's great. Now, do I think that's going to last? No, there are polls before that that weren't great. But you look at the Senate, Georgia Senate, uh, Atlanta Journal-Constitution, Warnock plus three. That's the most recent poll there. You have Vance and Tim Ryan neck and neck in Ohio. That is a race that like, man, if if somehow we pull that one off, that's an incredible seat. And then as we talked about last week, Oz is getting clobbered right now by Fetterman. It, it seems like Fetterman is owning that messaging war. And so I feel good. You can go down the list. Like Ron Johnson's a lunatic. Now that's going to be a very tough race for us. We don't know who the Democrat is going to be there yet. I mean, we can hold the Senate. We absolutely can. There's even a world where we can add to the Senate. And so I'm feeling okay. I mean, certain things are out of our control that I hope break our way, like the economy and inflation and all that. But I think the things that we could control, the quality of our candidates, the messaging, it has been good so far. So Jason, yesterday, Athletic Greens sent me a big package just to re-up my stack of Athletic Greens AG1. And I took a photo of it on Instagram and and they wrote back to me and I, I wrote back, I was like, I live for your approval. And I think they thought it was just like a creepy response or like a <laughs> snide response. But no, if you're listening, whoever does the Athletic Greens AG1 Instagram account, I literally mean that. I'm not going to say I live for their approval, but I deeply appreciate and somewhat seek their approval, I would say. So, um, you know, it sounds like I'm a little in a little bit healthier place on this than you, but that's okay because we're both <laughs> we're both much healthier because we drink AG1. 
Right now, it's time to reclaim your health and arm your immune system with convenient daily nutrition. It's just one scoop and a cup of water every day. That's it. No need for a million different pills and supplements to look out for your health. To make it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com slash majority. Again, that's athleticgreens.com slash majority to take ownership over your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. If you're living paycheck to paycheck or struggling to make ends meet, it can really be stressful when unexpected expenses come up. I know that's particularly tough right now when everything's more expensive, which is something we talk about on this podcast. Now Dave can help you get out of a pinch whenever you need it. This is a banking app that can help you get $500 instantly with extra cash. That's more money to fill your tank, buy a wedding gift, or catch up on bills. And you could finally tackle those expenses that have been stressing you out without any hangups, and there's no interest and no credit check needed. That's unbelievable. So download the Dave app from the App Store right now. That's D-A-V-E. Sign up for an extra cash account and get up to $500 instantly. For terms and conditions, go to dave.com slash legal. Instant transfer fees apply and banking provided by Evolve, a member of the FDIC. Future you will thank you. Okay, well, now we're going to bring you our conversation with Claudia Som. Claudia Som is a former Federal Reserve and White House economist and the founder of Stay-at-Home Macro Consulting. She has expertise on consumer spending, fiscal stimulus, and the financial well-being of households. She's also the creator of the Som Rule, a reliable indicator of a recession based on the unemployment rate. She developed the rule as a trigger for automatically sending out relief like stimulus checks in a recession. Claudia, thank you for coming and explaining things to us. Jason, before we start, I want to know, is there a candor rule? Because I feel like that's like a boss move to have a rule named after you. I know. I was thinking the same thing. I almost stopped in the middle of the bio and was like, I want a rule named after me. Yes, there is a candor rule. And here it, here's what it is. The candor rule is there is no reason to leave shrimp tails on the shrimp if you put them in pasta. All you're forcing me to do is put my hands in my own pasta it's like, what are you proving? Just take the tails and put them along the side of the plate. That would be fine. That's a strong rule. Yeah. What about you? Is there a Gupta rule? I'm going to think about it. I'll come back to you at, at some point in the next few weeks, and I'll, I'll declare my rule on the podcast. I am sure that it has something to do with optimization. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> Claudia, in more serious matters, we are in the middle of historic inflation. I think a good starting point, you've written so much about this. You know, just put it in historical terms right now where we are and what do we know about what's driving inflation today? Right. Well, if we if we look just at the number, it's true. The inflation that we've seen over the past year and a half, you have to go back 40 years to the 1970s to find something of that degree. Now, it is important to remember there are many, many things different about now versus the 1970s. We, for the last two and a half years, have lived through a pandemic, and we now have a war in Ukraine. You got to go way further back to find a pandemic and a war in Europe uh, paired together. So that's very important when thinking about the inflation. We have had our lives disrupted. We have had our economy disrupted. Let's not assume that, you know, I, for instance, could explain to somebody how those two things can cause inflation. I mean, right. of course I can, but let's not assume I can't. I mean, I can't. Right, right. So uh, yes. help me break that down. Those two things are bad. Why 
do they also result in inflation? Right. So big picture, kind of first principles, inflation, which is an increase in prices, comes about because we have a mismatch between supply and demand. Specifically, we have too little supply and too much demand. And so that then causes pressure on prices, like we're all competing to get the same thing. And so the prices go up. What happened during COVID, producers and businesses weren't able to keep up with the demand. When the economy reopened, when we got vaccines, people got back out and they were spending. It turns out that consumers move a lot faster than goods that start in Asia. Or, or even we saw workers who didn't feel safe going back to work, still had childcare issues. The people who go in and work in the restaurants, the hotels, you know, I don't like to call people supply, but I mean, they are an important, like those workers are an important part of being able to meet customers' demands. And since the spring, we have seen serious disruptions in terms of high gas prices and food. Russia is the second largest oil producer in the world. Ukraine is the largest wheat producer. Both of those were taken offline in terms of what we could uh, buy. And so even if demand hadn't gone up that much, was just growing at a normal pace, we would have had inflation. COVID and the war, they created disruptions in the things that, you know, the amount of the things we want to buy. And that's why this is so different than before. So let's, you know, let me break that down for a second, because I think a really important thing you said is that even if demand hadn't gone up, you'd still have inflation. And the reason for that is that when there's scarcity, like when if I'm selling widgets and usually I sell 10 widgets, I can charge a certain amount for those 10 widgets. If I only have five widgets to sell, regardless of what the demand is, I've got to charge more for those five widgets in order to make the same amount of money that I used to make with 10 widgets. Right. You have a shortage. And so businesses, you know, like we live in a capitalist economy, right? Like they can charge, yeah. they can charge more because they're... So they're, they're charging more in some cases for the five widgets than even the... They're, they're like, oh yeah, I can also make an extra profit right. here because there's demand. And that's, I mean, that's the economy we live in. It is also true that businesses, you know, they need a lot of widgets to produce their widgets, right? So their, mm-hmm. their costs, some of it's just, it's become more costly to do business and to sell things. We often talk about the inflation has risen 9% or has done. We don't have a lump of inflation. We Everybody goes out and they're buying different things. Some people's inflation, the increase of like their cost of living last year was way more than 9%. A lot of people, it was way less. Yeah. And, you know, to show those regional differences too are, are staggering. We were just looking at rent increases across the country. I think we're something like 11% over the past year, but in certain cities, they're, they're crazy. Like New York city is over 40% rent increase and Austin, Texas is over a hundred percent. Like that's like a staggering change to people's, you know, just ability to plan financially, you know? Right. And that goes way beyond the problems of COVID and the war in Ukraine. To me, what we could learn from this current crisis is how unprepared and not resilient the U.S. economy is. We have had almost two decades now of an underbuild in housing, like not enough apartments, not enough single family homes, particularly affordable housing, because we have a shortage of homes and had going into this The fact that we had this really good recovery in the labor market crashes into the fact that we don't have 
enough places to live. And so, you know, where we are today is, you know, we've got historic inflation and driven by so many different factors like you talked about. And we've got multiple governmental players within the United States, obviously abroad too, but within the United States trying to do something about it. So you have the Fed and then you have Biden and you have Congress. And thinking through those three actors slash bodies, what are they doing and what could they be doing and should they be doing to help fight inflation right now? Well, the, the Fed is the is looked to as the primary fighter of inflation. I'll talk about in a minute why I think putting too much weight on them is is deeply misguided. Their mandate from Congress is stable prices and maximum employment. We do not have stable prices. Inflation is very high. On maximum employment, we have a very low unemployment rate. We're close to the 50-year low of unemployment because now it's 3.6%. The tool that the Fed has, and they, they only have one tool that Congress has given them, and that's interest rates. And right now they are raising interest rates, frankly, raising them very aggressively. The purpose of that is to slow down demand. And we talked about this imbalance between supply and demand. The tool the Fed has, the interest rate, is basically a price. I mean, to put it crassly, they're making us a little bit poor so we don't buy as much stuff. And that that's the path. Now, they're trying to do it without throwing us into recession, And yet it's pretty clear that regardless of whether we go in reverse or not, this requires a certain amount of hardship. Like we would like to buy something, but the Fed convinces us, hold off, you know, it's too expensive to borrow. Like the Fed knows how to get inflation down. It could easily not be worth it if they do it too fast and we're in a recession. Like the Fed knows how to get inflation under control. This is the only tool the Fed has. Like it's not like it doesn't want us to have less stuff, but it needs to get inflation down. And frankly, if you listen to people, they want inflation down. I just don't feel like it's always appreciated the path. Well, it's not just like nobody knows. Nobody understands. Right. And that's why we're having this conversation. People are like, they need to get inflation down. And nobody is like and like there should be a built in price to, you know, large purchases that I would make in order to make me not make them so that, I mean, like that's not a thing anybody ever says. Yeah, And it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's people who are going to decide when inflation comes down, when customers get more price sensitive, businesses would like to sell stuff. So they're going to have to lower the prices eventually. But if you don't have to stop spending, well, you'll keep spending, right? Like, it's just, it's a really tricky dance. And and the Fed, there is no lever that they pull. But if the Fed has to go it alone, I don't think they should. I think the White House and Congress have a role to play. But if the Fed has to go it alone, it is a very tricky, can we slow down demand spending and investment, but not make it decrease. I mean, that's a recession. When we actually have to pull back on spending, when people lose their jobs, that is what the Fed wants to avoid. They don't have a good track record. So uh, that brings us to other than the Fed, right? White House, Congress, what they are doing, what they can be doing. These supply issues, right? This, This is the White House. This is Congress. Because the Fed can't drill for oil They can't plant wheat. The Fed cannot do anything on supply. 
a much, much better way to deal with inflation. Instead of telling people, eh, you can't spend as much, hey, there's more stuff, right? Like we can, that, that would be such a better way to ease this like pressure on prices. That requires efforts that frankly have been difficult to achieve in Washington. It's like the politest, most polite way I can put it. The and a good example, and this is one where I do give the White House credit. They have moved very slowly, but they are making, they made some really good decisions. So gas prices. Essentially, as as with all inflation, you either get supply up or you get demand down. Early on, uh, the Biden administration started releasing about a million barrels of oil a day out of the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. Right, because remember, we're trying to fill the gap of Russia, the second largest oil producer, being pulled off the market. There have been some other efforts. Yesterday, the administration released a new program. Basically, they're going to have to refill that, that reserve. And they have a new program to do contracts with oil producers. It's set up in a way that ought to encourage some of our domestic producers to do a little bit more. It's not the most ideal. You know, we, we don't want more fossil fuels, but this is where we're at. Uh, it's very hard to get gas demand down because we drive. Uh, there, are, there are some ways. Now here goes to Congress, right? They are let off the hook in these discussions and they should not be. One of the problems with the, the situation with gasoline, we do not have an energy like plan. There is no proposal. There is no, and that means in a moment like this, when there's a crisis, we're going to have all kinds of problems. We're going to have high gas prices. We're going to be out, you know, talking to dictators about doing more oil. I mean, it just, it becomes bad. So Congress, it might not solve the inflation right now. It will protect us from the next time it comes, which it will. I mean, the, the energy markets, I mean, this is like every five to six years. The other efforts that you talked about, the rent prices, Again, Congress can fund affordable housing, build like building homes, building apartments. And they're so close in some regards, right? Because the the legislation that Senator Manchin put on ice just a couple weeks ago, citing fears of inflation, every single part of that legislation would fight inflation, keeping the the subsidies on the uh, Affordable Care Act insurance premiums, keeping that from expiring, would help keep inflation down like real soon, right? That one wasn't even a, we gotta wait years. And it really, I don't know, it just hurt to see him justify setting that bill aside because of inflation, right? So you think he was just making that up? Like that was- I don't- so there are there are many misconceptions in Washington about how policies work. Just <laughs> just like we talked about the misunderstanding, the Fed's got this. The Fed's going to go it alone. I've heard members of Congress, I heard President Biden at an event say that too. You know, saying, "Oh, gas prices are high, food prices are high. The Fed's got this." And it's like, "Oh, oh, these these are exactly the things the Fed doesn't got." Right. Because it's or or the only way those come down is in a severe recession. It's like, no, we don't want that. And the other thing 
that I think is related to Senator Manchin's concerns is the idea of, well, if we do large legislation and it increases the deficit, that will cause inflation. So I, I firmly disagree with this lens on judging legislation. The problem is it's not how much you spend necessarily that is like, does this cause inflation or not? It's like, what do you do with it? And the programs they're talking about are all investments. I mean, there were pieces with the subsidies for the health insurance, the prescription drugs, energy policy is so important for dealing with uh, supply and making sure we fight future um, inflation. And then he had a large tax increase. I think that was on corporations or that one would really go pretty quick at pulling out uh, demand and lowering inflation. And then there was some deficit spending left, but so you're doing all these investments. This is not inflationary. And yet I think there's this both a lack of urgency because it's, oh, the Fed's got this. And then a misconception about what actually causes inflation. Like we ought to be using this moment of the high inflation as a real wake up call that we have a lot of problems in this economy and we are not ready for crises. And Congress, by having the power of the purse, they are the ones that can do the most. They can do targeted programs. They can actually get money out. They don't have to just monkey around with tax rates. I mean, they can send money. I think like the people who are worried about sending money, they're worried that that will just make matters worse, right? Like if you had earlier said that, you know, people are price sensitive to certain things, obviously like gas is one thing and housing are two things that they might not be as price sensitive to. But if we give people money, could that not lead to like a major spiral uh, of prices that that people are sensitive to or at least delay the, the sort of drop in prices in certain goods? So in this context, what I meant, and I'm glad you're letting me clarify it, was sending money to like home builders. Some people can't just put solar panels on the roof and get the tax credit. There are lower income communities, people that if you just went in and said, hey, we're going to build the panels on your roof, right? They'd be all for it because they don't have the money to put up front and like spread it over 10 years. So that's what I meant about Congress has the ability to get the money out to the programs, the investments that it wants to make, and it can do it very targeted. You're saying like there are gaps in the system that cause inflation. Like here's the thing that if we fill this gap, it's going to bring down the price of this overall thing, or it's going to bring that down the demand of this thing. Electric vehicles is an example, right? If we make it if we incentivize people to buy electric vehicles, then you're going to bring down the demand for uh, oil, gas, and Therefore, a couple steps later, you're going to bring down the price. And your point is Congress can spend money to make those gaps get filled with a greater likelihood. Right. And inflation is just an increase in price. It's just an increase in cost of living. Congress ought to be doing things that avoid a moment like this. I had a, a friend early on in the pandemic. It is even more uh, dark than when he said it, that COVID is our dress rehearsal for a climate change disaster, right? Like we're just, like we ought to look at this and say, this economy is not working for everyone. It is not resilient. We have investments that haven't been made in our people and our planet is, you know, right up at the top of the list. 
So a commitment, like if if policymakers care as much about inflation as they say, well, go at that future inflation. Make sure our cost of living doesn't increase as much. And in some areas, try and get those prices down. This has been super helpful, I think, for me, at least, in understanding the dynamics of inflation, of the economy, what's happening, what could happen, what the different debates are about why certain people think there's certain causes versus others. So here's my question is for people listening to this right now, they're in a conversation with like, you know, their conservative relative who's like, well, I'm just upset about inflation. And they want to persuade them of what could actually be done. And that the answer is not, well, we should put Trump back in office. What would be your argument to them? What I often ask people who are very concerned about inflation, gas prices, what what should we do about it? Right. And this isn't me being glib. Uh, and it's really more of a question for policymakers to answer. But I would love to know what the Republicans plan is to get gas prices down. Right. These are the outrage over inflation is bipartisan. Right. The, the answer is not get a time machine and go back and don't pass the American Rescue Plan. Right. Like because we can't we can't go back there. Right. We have a problem now. We need to find ways to solve the problem. We need all kinds of creative solutions. If those were on the table and we didn't have those policymakers in power, I would be more sympathetic to, hey, let's get them in power. But it's I'm not the American people are saying this is a crisis. And the response in Congress is not the way they respond to a crisis. In a recession, the CARES Act was passed within two weeks. Congress is capable of doing something in a crisis. So the question is, why aren't they? They seem to be more interested in making inflation into a political issue than coming forward. I mean, just the other day, there was a vote in Congress where the Republicans almost uniformly opposed a bill that would do nothing but decrease the price of prescription medicine. Yeah, and I do think by Congress not doing everything it can to get prices down, and I, you know, red, blue, in between, like, this should just be the focus, because if the Fed has to go it alone, there is a very high chance that we end up in a recession. A recession is worse than inflation. It just full stop. And and I don't think that that's... Uh, Somehow, I don't think that's being absorbed or uh, it, it's very frustrating. And and yet, you know, people are saying inflation is a problem. It's a problem. I agree. Let's do something about it. It does appear there's a lot more point scoring than there is coming up with actual solutions. Like tweeting at gas station owners is not going to help. I mean, like, we need them to keep their stations open. You know, so it's, these solutions are really hard. Like, there is there is no magic wand, no solution that's going to, like, solve it all. I think people should be demanding that all of our policymakers, particularly in Congress, are working together to solve it. 
Thank you so much for coming on and for explaining a super complicated set of concepts to us. Thank you. All right. Thank you for Claudia for making us smarter. Uh, I really appreciate that. I'm sure that everybody listening did as well. Now you have all sorts of much smarter things to say to people about inflation, uh, which you know I'm looking forward to doing. In the first half of the show, we talked about a lot of the things that have us concerned. Why don't you share some of the things that have you concerned? What are you worried about happening out there? Maybe we can make you feel better. Maybe we're going to verify those concerns for you or validate them. I don't know. But let us know. 508-687-2589-687-2589, area code 508. You can email us at m54 at wondermedianetwork.com. I'm at Jason Kander on Instagram and Twitter. Ravi is at Ravi M. Gupta on Twitter and Instagram. Claudia is at Claudia underscore Sam, S-A-H-M on Twitter. And our show is at Majority54 on Twitter. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Majority 54 is a Wonder Media Network production. It's produced by Grace Lynch, Edie Allard, and Adesua Agbenile. Theme music provided by Kevin Coleman. And special thanks to Diana Kander. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.